Well, I'll tell you what, if you're not back here tonight, you're going to miss a one-night revival. Because I'll tell you, God uses Luke, and that's, you just had a taste of how he does. Well, turn to Revelation chapter 9. We're going through the book of Revelation. And that's kind of what this passage is about in Revelation chapter 9. You know that there are seven seals, and the seventh seal leads to seven trumpets. There are seven trumpets that lead to seven bowls, all of which are pictures in the little window of the vision that God gave to John on the Isle of Patmos, six, a rocky place, six miles wide, ten miles long. And uh, there he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And we have come to the sixth trumpet in verse 13. And the sixth angel sounded... And I heard, a golden, I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. That's the altar of prayer, not the altar of incense. That's the altar of prayer in the heavenly tabernacle in the holy place. Saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who have been prepared, watch this, for the hour and day, and month, and year. Good way to read that is, the appointed hour, the appointed day, the appointed month, and the appointed year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now this picture is a prophetic picture. We're not far from there. It's a tribulation time, a time of great judgment on the earth. We're not far. We're not far from that. Somewhere between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ, there is this picture. And the number, verse 16, of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. And I heard the number of them. And I saw the horses in the vision who sat on them. They had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. And by these three plagues, three plagues, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths, for their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So the sixth angel gives us his drama. Can you peek with me into the mind of John and see what he saw for a moment on that isle of Patmos? But what he saw was the sixth angel blowing the trumpet. And when he blew the trumpet, he heard a voice from the four horns which are over the altar in the holy place, the altar, the golden altar of incense. It was the, the brass altar of sacrifice in the outer court. But in the holy place, the golden altar of incense was the altar of prayer. We've already been there. Do you remember when the prayers of the saints were offered up at that golden altar? 
Now it is as if the prayers of the saints are crying out from that altar of justice, saying, yes, now bring judgment and justice on the earth. And the purpose of that is to vindicate the justice of God, but to validate the suffering of the people of God in every age. So the prayers of the people of God cry out from the golden altar in John's vision. And they cry this, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now these are not the four angels from the four corners of the earth, who were the angels of the winds in the seals. These four angels are at the great river Euphrates. They're ready to let go and let the ancient nemeses of Israel loose. Nearly all of Israel's great enemies came from across the river Euphrates. The Assyrian army came across the river Euphrates. All their enemies came across the Euphrates. It was there in the land of the Euphrates where the first lie was told. There the first misery was experienced. There the first murder occurred. There envy was born. There the first lie was, was lied. There. And it is as if the four angels, I think these are demonic angels who came out of that abyss. I don't think they're from God. I think they're the evil angels. But these four angels are now going to be released. Verse 15. They had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. Folks, God doesn't make any mistakes, and he knows when all the judgment that is being poured out upon the earth is going to happen. And these four angels have been prepared for this day. And so they are released to kill a third of mankind. A third. Now this is not torment as in the fifth trumpet. This is death in the sixth trumpet. This is not killing a quarter of the creatures as happened under the seals. And by the way, if you take a quarter and then you take a third, you've got a half. By this time in the tribulation, a half of all the population of the world has been destroyed. Did you boys follow that? Children, did you understand that? If you take, if you take 12 and take away a third, what have you got? Or you, first you take away a quarter, rather. What have you got? You got 9,000 left. Then if you take a third of 9,000, what have you got? A, a quarter of 12 is three, right? And a third of nine is three. And three and three makes six. And six from 12 leaves six. So half of the world is destroyed by the end of this trumpet. You didn't get that? Look, I am no great shakes at math, but even I can figure out that a fourth and a third make a half. When do a fourth and a third make a half? Right now. If you start with 12,000 and you take a fourth of 12,000, you lose 3,000 people, right? That leaves 9,000. And then you take a third of 9,000, that's 3,000. Three from nine equals six. So a fourth and a third equal half right there. That's six of the 12,000 are gone. Half of the population of the world is destroyed by the time you complete the sixth trumpet of judgment. And then the scripture says that there was an army, that these four angels from across the Euphrates re released an army of 200 million horses and riders. But the horses are more important than the riders, verse 17. They had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. 
I think the horses are more important than the riders. It's the horses that destroy. Now, there are those who think this is an army, maybe an army from China, the only nation which could field an army of 200 million. And some think these are 200 million demons, symbolic. Whatever it is, it is demonic judgment that is poured out on the earth. And the red and the blue and the sulfur yellow represent the three plagues they bring with them. And those plagues coming across the earth are fire, smoke, and brimstone. Red, blue, and sulfur yellow brimstone, which come out of the mouths of the horses who had heads like lions and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. So during this time, and this is about the time that the Antichrist will be revealed, there are three great plagues that kill another third of all mankind. Whether or not it is an actual army, and it could be, it is demonic forces poured out on the earth, and the tails are like serpents. Just like in the fifth trumpet, the tails were the scorpions, the deceitfulness, the lies that are preached as truth, and the world is deceived. They're stung by them in the fifth trumpet. They're slain by them in the sixth trumpet. Verse 19 says, Their power is in their mouth and in their tails, and their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. Now pause for a moment and see and understand. This is describing a time in the future. It is a prophetic thing during the tribulation between the rapture of the body and the second coming of Christ to set up his kingdom. And judgment in, and this is one thing we see from the passage so far, judgment increases more and more through that great period as we get nearer the return of Christ. Now that's something you need to understand. There are periods when you draw back and a brief period of revival, even before the rapture, there will be periods of time when evil will cease increasing for a moment and there will be brief periods of revival. But did you hear what the preacher last Sunday night said? He said, for the first time in America's history, we have gone more than 60 years without a revival in this country. And we have gone 90 years since the last great general revival in the United States. I tell you, folks, there's a principle here. Always understand this about the book of Revelation. Sin and violence and evil will increase and increase the more as we get near the return of Christ. And after the rapture of the body, it gets even worse during the severe judgment of the tribulation period. And the sixth trumpet brings the most severe judgment yet upon this earth up to this time, and another third of the earth is killed. But here's the tragedy. In that tribulation, when the church has been taken off and there's no Holy Spirit to convict, men have to respond to the truth of the preaching of this kingdom of God. There will be truth preached. There will be 144,000 Jewish evangelists. But look at verse 20, one of the saddest passages in the book of Revelation. The rest of mankind, the half who are spared the judgment of the seals and the trumpets, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands. Well, that is one of the saddest things in all of the book of Revelation. They did not repent. The plagues do not bring men to repentance. 
Why can men not see God's hand in that kind of judgment? But then men do that today. We see things happen and we credit it either to coincidence or to politics. But folks, you and I, as a people of God, must learn to see the increasing crime and violence is God's judgment on this world. It is God's judgment. As I try to see the world through the eyes of God, I understand what happens is not just coincidence. It is not just politics. It is not just the result of uh, socialism or a lack of free economics. No, it is, a it is God's judgment on a society. And God deals with individuals and he deals with societies and continents and then the world. I've seen this. I've watched this for 40 years. God sometimes deals with a family as a unit. And I see what is happening today in America as God's judgment on us. So men see the world through a different set of eyes. This is a coincidence. It's a catastrophe. It's a lack of education. It's a lack of economic opportunity. The Christian looks at what's going on in the world and understands that everything that happens is the judgment of God as we get closer to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch something that happens in verses 20 and 21 because I think the practical theme of, of Revelation is, um, is what I want to get at. And, and I hope you understand what I'm trying to do. I could stand up here for 40 minutes and tell you what the hyacinth blue represents and, and that there's a little nation over there hidden between Luxembourg and Hiatus and, and uh, they've got blue on their flag and that's, there's a secret uh, little kind of uh, conspiracy going on over there to raise a 200 million army. And, uh, you know, I could go through all that stuff. But, but that's not the way I read the book of Revelation. I, I hope you understand I'm trying to be practical with a great prophetic book. And I think the lessons that God wants us to learn are lessons right here in verses 20 and 21. As a result of the sixth trumpet, men don't repent. Why don't men repent? What do we do when men don't repent? And I have a larger question. As I fell on my face before God over this passage, I asked the question, oh God, what can you do in my life that I will be sensitive to repentance? I don't want my heart to grow hard like these people in the tribulation. Now I want you to understand something here. Watch the, watch the progression. There is the rejection of God's message which leads to idolatry in verse 20. They did not repent of their works of their hands and they went on worshiping idols. And so you have rejection of God's message you have idolatry, and then you have the increase of social sins. It's a progression, and that's a cycle that keeps going on in mankind. Hold your hand here. I want to show you one other place in the Scripture where that happens. Do you remember Romans 1? Romans chapter 1. Turn back. Let me show that to you because this is very important. When he says in verse 18... The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Because, verse 19, what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them, to men. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. The whole world had a chance to see God. 
God revealed himself to the whole world in the light of natural creation. And all world could see that. But, verse 21, although they knew God, they had a chance to see God in creation. They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, professing to be wise, verse 22, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men. He's talking about idols. Now, I want you to understand a principle of the Scripture. It's true in every place. Idolatry is not man on his way to find God. Idolatry is what happens when man rejects what he knows already of God. Rejection of God leads to idolatry, which leads to social sin. Next, Paul says, therefore, because man rejected what they knew of God and turned to idols... Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness. And then he describes this uncleanness, verse 29, being filled, and he mentions every kind of social sin you can imagine, being filled with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, go on doing such things. I mean, he covers the whole thing. I think he got everybody in this room, including you. <laughs> now, I want you to see that principle. Well, that is very important. Some point you reject God, then you're open for idolatry. And when you're open to idolatry, then you're open to social sins. That's the progression. It's the way it always goes. The sin and the crime and violence of our society is a result of idolatry. Idolatry, a result of the rejection of God. You say, well, I don't see little gods sitting around our houses. Oh, no. You see, our kind of idolatry in this age is different. It's addiction to drugs. It's sexual idolatry. Anything which becomes master of your life it's alcoholic idolatry. It is money idolatry. It is family idolatry, where family traditions become more important than Jesus, which is why Jesus said, I'm not playing down family uh, uh, traditions. I'm just saying, don't ever let it become your idol. Don't let your children become your idol. Don't let your family become your idol. Jesus said it. I didn't say it. Don't let father, mother, brother, sister, son or daughter, anybody, anything come between you and him. So the rejection of God leads to idolatry and idolatry leads to social sin. Now you see, we got a lot of mistaken people who see idolatry. This is just man on an upward evolutionary course seeking God, looking for God. Oh no, Paul says. And the book of Revelation confirms it. It is, a it is a result of the rejection of what we know of God. Now let me pose a question to you. What can I do in this age, in this time, to avoid getting to that state? What can I do to avoid the development of an unrepentant heart? What can I do to avoid getting where this half of all mankind got to? I want to give you five ways to avoid an unrepentant heart. Five biblical things you must do 
to uh, avoid the hardening of your heart against the voice of God. Man, I want to tell you, I don't ever want to get to the place where my heart is so hard God cannot speak to me. I don't ever want to get to the place where my heart is so hard I can't be moved by a song like I choose Jesus. Amen? Amen. I don't ever want to get to a place where my heart is so hard that I can't be touched by my wife's needs or my children's needs. Can I share with you five ways to avoid an unrepentant heart? Here they are. First, number one, the first way, practice identifying God's mercy. Practice identifying God's mercy. If you would avoid an unrepentant heart, look for the mercy of God throughout life in everything. When, when judgment is withheld, when God allows you, practice giving glory to God for His mercy. I was in a church last week and a girl had been in an automobile accident. The truck had turned over and, uh, and she came out with a little chip on her foot. And, the, you know, somebody said, you can always tell a person's values by what's the first question they ask when they come on an automobile accident. If you had a, have you ever done that? You've come to an automobile accident and somebody runs up and says, how bad is the car hurt? No, 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 no. How bad are the people? Is anybody inside? John and I were coming back from, from uh, Laurel Ridge this summer after senior high camp. And a car had flipped over in the woods and was in the woods with its lights on. A car from Nevada. It's 12, 15 at night on a mountain road. And there's a car. I didn't know whether the guy was sitting inside with a shotgun or what. But we stopped on a mountain to look inside. We couldn't find anybody. I got brave and shouted if anybody was around. So I just, you know, I was sitting on the mountain. I called 911 in Wilkes County and said, we got a car in the woods over here. And uh, we reported it. That's all. But the first question is, is there anybody in there who's hurt? That's the way you tell the values of the person. Identify God's mercy and praise Him for it. Turn to Exodus chapter 8. And in Exodus 8, I want you to notice what happened to the plagues of Egypt. When Pharaoh, when, when Pharaoh refused to let the children of Israel come out of Egypt. Here's a good lesson for you. In chapter 8... After the, the plague of the frogs, the first plague was blood, the second plague was frogs. Look in verse 15. See, I'm sure Pharaoh thought, oh my, the environment's getting bad. There, there probably was somebody who said to Pharaoh, well, the, the problem, the reason we have all these frogs is that we got an environmental upset. <laughs> oh no, no, it's God's judgment. See, the people of Egypt didn't, they, they probably didn't understand. Pharaoh should have because Moses told him. But look at what happens in verse 15. When Pharaoh saw that there was relief when he saw that the plague of the frogs had been withdrawn, what did he do? He said, oh, isn't this wonderful? God has given us his mercy and given us a chance to let Israel go. Is that what the verse says? What does it say? When he saw that God gave him mercy and God gave him relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. He failed to see the mercy of God. 
One of the fundamental reasons why we develop a hard, unrepentant heart is we fail to understand the mercy of God. We see God's chastening and then God relents and we think that God is all done with us. And now we really fool God and I'm ready to go on and we take advantage of him. And every time you do that, you harden your heart. Pharaoh did it. That's not the only place in chapter 8, verse 32, with the fourth plague of flies. Verse 31 says, The Lord did according to the word of Moses. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. The mercy of God, he turned into an excuse for hardening his heart. Well, God's related. Oh, boy. It's all right. We can go back. Now we can keep Israel. Oh, no. And again in chapter 9, verse 34, the same principle. When Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. You want to know how to avoid getting a hard, unrepentant heart? Practice seeing the mercy of God in everything. Practice seeing the mercy of God every day. Look for the mercy of God. Your visa company writes and says you've had good payment record. You've got 30 extra days of grace. Brother, get on your knees and praise God. Thank you for your mercy, Lord, even if it's 30 days worth. Amen? <laughs> your father-in-law sends you a birthday card with 100 bucks in it. You say, thank you, Lord, for your mercy. <laughs> Look for the mercy of God. Praise him for his mercy. Learn to identify the restraint of anything, the holding back of anything perceived as judgment is the mercy of God. But rather than let it make you hard and presume against God, let it make you praise Him for His mercy. Can you practice the mercy of God that way? <laughs> he misperceived God's relief. Children do that when you're training them. You give them discipline. You remember what I told you mercy was, not giving a person, remember that's six wax, not giving a person everything they deserve. Children see your kindness to them and they misperceive that and they'll, you give a child an inch and he'll take a what? He'll take the car. <laughs> see God's mercy in everything. Second, practice giving to the poor. If you would keep a sensitive, repentant heart and avoid an unrepentant heart, read with me Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 7. I kid you not, it's amazing how God has identified these in the Scripture. In chapter 15, verse 7, he's giving the law regarding owing money. And he says in verse 7, If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not, now here it is, read it. You shall not harden your heart, nor shut your hand from your poor brother. If you want to avoid an unrepentant heart, practice giving to the poor. Every day, look for someone for whom you can do something. Look for someone to whom you can give something. I promise you, if you would give something to the poor every day the rest of your life, you will not harden your heart. You will keep a sensitive heart. 
diligently ask every day. Suppose we had our minds fixed on that. Who around me is in need? You know, I, I, I have this thing. Wherever I am, I like to give something to an offering. Sunday night, I like to give something in the offering. Oh, I've already tithed my income on Sunday morning. But I try to carry a dollar or two. I got two right now. I like to give something. I promise you, if the ushers came up here on the pulpit, I'd give something else every Sunday morning. Shirley gives in the class she leads for new members. But I, like to, I just like to give. I just think it's good to learn to give, even if it's a buck, two bucks, three bucks, 5,000 bucks, you know, some little gift here and there. But as we learn to give to the poor, God makes us conscious of the needs of others. How to avoid an unrepentant, hardened heart. First, practice identifying God's mercy. Second, practice giving to the poor. Third, practice listening to rebuke and correction. Listen to every rebuke and correction from God, man, husband, and wife, and children. Practice listening to every rebuke. Take your Bibles and go to Proverbs 29. It's one of the first verses I memorized when I was a teenager learning Scripture. Proverbs 29. He who is often reproved and hardens his neck against that reproof will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Now turn that around to the positive. Oh God, let me listen to every correction. Let me listen to every rebuke. And let me learn to take rebuke. So that as I learn to take rebuke, I avoid a hard heart. I can't imagine. Here a third of the, a, a fourth and then a third of the people and now a half of all mankind is destroyed by demonic plagues. And, and the way people understand them as demonic is they can't identify. There's, there's no rational reason for these plagues to cover the earth. That's, that's usually demonic. And yet they refuse to repent. And the question is, oh God, how can I avoid developing an unrepentant heart? And the answer is practice listening to every rebuke. Because if I don't listen to rebuke, I harden my heart. I harden my neck. I can't take rebuke. Pay attention to every rebuke of any kind. Or better yet, practice saying I'm sorry to someone once a day. Some of you men, your children have never ever heard you say I'm sorry or I'm wrong. Suppose we made it a practice of the believer's life to say I'm sorry once a day. I'm wrong once a day. and the rebuke of God. The reason that God can't bless some of you beyond where he's taken you is because you've never learned to listen to his rebuke or his correction. The word of God is profitable. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine and for correction, for reproof and instruction in right living. How many of you already can think of somebody you should have said, I'm sorry, I'm wrong to today? Go do it. Practice it every single day. 
This hit me like a ton of bricks when my oldest child, Steve, was 15. And we were at a Bible conference, and I was speaking at the Ocean City Bible Conference in Ocean City, New Jersey. And I'd taken my children, and Reg Moore, many of you remember Reg. Reg and I taught our children how to play tennis. So while we were there, we had a, a tennis match with the pastor and his son. Little competition, you know. Not that any courses are ever competitive. And we were getting whipped. And so I started shouting instructions to my 15-year-old son. You know, the partner always runs at risk in doubles of shouting to your partner, especially when you're behind, about where he should position himself on the court. And I started shouting in front of the pastor and his son that we were playing with. I started shouting to Steve instructions, get on the court. Son, move back. Get up. Hit the net. You know, because I, I was getting anxious. We were falling behind. When all of a sudden, this sweet, tender, childlike, meek, son of mine filled with the spirit saved raised in a Baptist preacher's home loves Jesus with all of his heart threw his racket on the court and said dad will you stop ordering me around I'm old enough to know where to be on the court I said well thank you if you want to play without me I'll just leave that was my first thought but that's not what he said to me. Do you hear Bob? That's not what he said to me. He didn't say, I don't want to play with you. What did he say? He said, stop ordering me around on the court. That's what he said. He rebuked me. My 15-year-old son. He hurt my feelings. Seven years my feelings were hurt. <laughs> you say, well, a tennis game isn't worth it. No, you missed the point. It was my son. He had come to the place where he didn't need public correction, and I did. <laughs> so that when, several years later, he was a pastor, he called me and he said, Dad, he said, I love you, and you're the greatest dad anybody could have. But he said, you need to know that as I work through my givenness, as I work through what motivates me and drives me to try to do everything everybody wants me to do, which is always the pastor's temptation. He said, I look back and there's just a little tinge of resentment because you worked so hard when I was a boy and there were times that I wanted more of you and I couldn't have you. Now, what was I going to say? I wasn't going to address him and lecture him about how hard it is to pastor. He didn't care about that. He knew that. I just said to him, son, I'm so sorry. If I had it to do again, I'd give you a little more time. I'd try to do it. And you see, that's, that's part of growth for him and for me is to learn how to take rebuke and correction. And so he who hardens is often reproved and hardens his neck will suddenly de be destroyed. Practice saying, I'm wrong once a day. It's amazing what it will do for you. The fourth thing in avoiding an unrepentant heart is practice believing God. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 3. 
Hebrews chapter 3, when the scripture is describing the children of Israel in the wilderness, in verse 8, he says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He's talking to Israel as a nation, of course. And he's saying that these Hebrew Jewish Christians to whom the book is written should avoid hardening their hearts as the children of Israel in the day of trial in the wilderness, verse 9, where your fathers tested me and they proved me. And for 40 years they proved me and they saw my works. But they still had a hard time believing me. So he says in verse 12, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. This is a very clear warning. If you want to avoid an unrepentant heart, make sure that you practice every day taking God at some promise, taking God at some way, take him at his word and see the hand of God just as you see the hand of God in judgment. See the hand of God in blessing so that you are believing God and you're building on that belief and you're building and building and building on that belief and you're not testing. They tested God and saw his works for 40 years, but they never got into the promised land because of their unbelief in spite of everything they saw. Practice believing God. What if every promise of God came true at once? In the first place, I couldn't handle it. Could you? If he opened the windows of heaven and gave me a revival and, uh, and blessed the whole, and everybody in the church had a revival at the same time, I, I tell you, I don't know whether I could handle all God's promises coming true at once. Is there anybody who thinks they could? But don't test God through disbelief, but practice belief. Let me give you the fifth way to avoid an unrepentant heart. Practice thinking through the consequences of sin. Practice thinking through the consequences of sin. Hebrews, right where you are, chapter 3, and look at verse 13. He said, exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the what? Now, what's the word? Look at the phrase. You can develop a hard heart when you are deceived by sin. Now, what is the deceitfulness of sin? The deceitfulness of sin is thinking that you can avoid the consequences of it. That it'll get Robert Watson, but it won't get me. See, it'll get Alan Brown, but it won't get me. It'll get Art Ford, but it won't get me. Uh, let me tell you, the law of sowing and reaping will not let you escape. Like man in the Tower of Babel, as we try to climb up and act like we are gods, man is, and technology are, are in futility, trying to save the world from the consequences of sin. A man called and asked if, if we could uh, put the uh, North Carolina AIDS partnership in the budget. And I uh, said, well, I'll make the request. We'll see what we can give to them because I believe we ought to do everything we can to reach people who are suffering from the consequences. Not all of them, of course, but most of them. But much of America's technology is designed to try to spare us from the consequences of sin. Fat-free sour cream. Who ever heard of such thing? Don't embarrass the cow. Fat-free sour cream. Consequence-free 
No fault sin. No fault sexual behavior. We must give all first graders condoms and, and so that there's no consequences from their sin. Where did this come from? It is typical of man's efforts throughout every age to spare humankind from the consequences of sin. And that's the deceitfulness of sin. You can do it and get away with it. You can do it and get away with it. Oh, no. Sooner or later, God knows. I don't know why other people can get away with things. You know, I hear about people, they cheat on their income tax for 19 years and nobody catches them. And if I forget to sign, they, they, they send the police and the IRS agents to me. I mean, that's just the way it is. You feel that way sometimes, Luke? That's the way I feel. I can't get away with anything. And beware of the deceitfulness of sin which hardens the heart. You want to keep an unrepentant heart? You cannot avoid the consequences of sin. And that's why it's wise to practice thinking through the consequences of sin. You've heard me say many times one of the greatest things you can do for your children is let them suffer the consequences for their actions. And one of the, one of the signs of great self-esteem is self-responsibility. I take responsibility for my behavior, what I do. Nobody else can stand before God on my behalf. Every man, Romans 14 says, will have to stand before Christ. And therefore, we must learn to take the consequences of sin. There is one exception to all of that. Thank God that's why Jesus went to the cross. You know, if you understand this, for us in this age, before the rapture, before the tribulation, before all this judgment is poured out on the earth, in this great day and age of grace, Christ took our consequences for sin for us on the cross. He also vicariously won the victory. He was tempted by Satan through the, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the, the, the pride of life. But he came out victorious over all of Satan's temptations. And he finally went to the cross so that we could have victory over the consequences of sin because he took those consequences for us. But science can't do it. Education can't do it. Money can't do it, and if we're going to keep a heart that is sensitive to the leadership of God and avoid an unrepentant heart, we will have to learn to think through the consequences of sin in our lives. And don't be deceived by thinking that the devil will let you off the hook or that God will. I love the story of the philosopher Moses Mendelssohn. Mendelssohn lived from 1729 to 1786 in Germany. He was a brilliant scholar and a brilliant philosopher. He was, as the name implies, Jewish. And one, he was born a hunchback, however. And people, children, the populace always made fun of Mendelssohn when he was in public. And one day he went to Hamburg and he met a gorgeous, luscious daughter of a rich Jewish mer merchant. Her name was Frumji. And Frumji was as mature as Mendelssohn and she was, she became, they became friends and, and, and 
One day he had to leave Hamburg and he had to go back to his own home. And he went in to talk to her father. And he was trying to get up enough nerve to ask if he could marry Fromji. And the father cast his eyes down and then looked and said, well, I think my daughter probably could not marry you. And Mendelssohn said, I know, because I'm a hunchback and I'm deformed. And everybody looks at me that way. He said, sir, to Frumchi's father, could I just have one more meeting with her? Could I go to her room and just say goodbye to her? The father said, all right, you may do that before you leave. He went to Frumchi's room. And there they talked for a moment. They made small talk. They conversed. And then he said, you know, I love you very much. She said, I know, but. He said, oh, let me tell you a story. He said, do you know how, what the Talmud tradition is? That when a boy is born, somebody announces in heaven the, girl, the name of the girl that that boy is going to marry? She said, yes. He said, well, when I was born, they shouted all over heaven, Moses Mendelssohn is going to marry Frumpji. And then a voice came from the other side of heaven and said, Oh, no, he can't marry Frumchi. She's going to be born with a hunchback, and she'll be a hideous sight to see. And little Moses Mendelssohn said to heaven, Let me have her hunchback so she won't have to go through life with one. And Frumpji's eyes got this large by the time the story was over. And she said, I will marry you, Moses. The good news that in the story, maybe he got her hunchback. Oh, he was a clever philosopher, wasn't he? He took it on himself. You know, across heaven there are rings when you and I are in trouble, bearing the consequences of sin. Oh, it's okay, God. It is I, Jesus Christ. I took Mark Kortz's sin for him on me. And my heart cries out, oh, God. I want to love Jesus Christ and serve him and follow him because he gave himself for me and took the consequences of my punishment on himself. Amen. Amen. Oh, Father, keep us from an unrepentant heart. Make us sensitive to your leading, sensitive to your prodding, sensitive to your holiness sensitive to every consequence of sin. Speak to someone who is unsaved without Jesus or someone who's been deceived by sin and thinks that they can go on in their sin and never be caught by it. Don't let them grow hard through the deceitfulness of sin.
in Jesus' name.